We'll begin reading at verse 37 through 52. Now on that last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because, the, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does not, or rather, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is saying or doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Let us pray together. Our Lord and our God, we pray for the ministry of your Spirit who gives illumination to your word and conviction and understanding and all of these things. We pray that you would teach us, speak to us, and change us to make us more like your Son. In whose name we do pray, amen. You may be seated. Water. It's one of the basic necessities of life. And on average, as far as I read, man cannot go more than three days without it. When you drink water, it helps your body. It supports the cells in your body. It helps with cognitive function. It can give energy. It lubricates the joints in your body. Of course, it prevents dehydration. And when you're thirsty and your mouth is parched, your body craves it. I know last week sometime we had pizza at my house and uh, during the night because of that sodium-filled crust and who knows where else the salt was, I drank at least 40 ounces of water during the night. And I woke up thirsty. Well, it's in our text that our Lord Jesus himself offers himself as the only source of satisfaction for our soul's longing. He compares that to which he offers in salvation to rivers of living water. That is, life itself, joy and satisfaction. Remember where our Lord Jesus is at this time in John chapter 7. He is at that great feast. 
the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus is found in the temple. He is teaching the people. And remember, there's already Christ, as it were, on him. The leaders, the religious teachers, the Pharisees, uh, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. Um, back in verse 1, we are told the Jews sought to kill him. In verse 13, no one would speak openly about Jesus for fear of those same Jews. And in verse 25, there's the question, is not this he whom they seek to kill? And as we saw last time in verse 30, it's Jesus whom they sought to take, but his hour had not yet come. And so he was spared in God's providence. And so Jesus is found here in the temple teaching at that time when throngs of Jews would come and descend upon the holy city of Jerusalem. As we consider his words here this morning and what follows, I just want to divide our text into two headings. First of all, we'll look at this great invitation of our Lord. We'll see its context and its content. And then we'll look at the varied uh, responses or the varied reception of that great invitation that he gave and that he gives today. <clears throat> so first of all, let's look at its context and its content. Content. That's in verses 37 through 39. Uh, John tells us the timing of these words of our Lord. In verse 37 it says, On the last day of that great day of the feast... There is some question as to what the last day is, how many days the feast officially lasted, um, whether it was seven days or eight days. But it was on the last day, John tells us, of that great feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, the feast itself was instituted by God. We read about it in Leviticus 23. Also, you can read about it in Exodus 23, Deuteronomy chapter 16. And it was one of those required annual feasts required by the uh, men of Israel to attend. And so even if they were among the dispersion outside of Jerusalem, they had to make that pilgrimage often with their families to Jerusalem in order to attend this feast. It would last approximately seven days. Uh, it should have lasted seven days. And the first began with a Sabbath rest and a sacred assembly. And uh, the people, remember, they would come and they would take the various branches from those trees in that area and make these little tents, these little huts, and they would dwell in those huts uh, for the duration of the feast. And they were reenacting God's provision for their ancestors, those who um, were in the wilderness for 40 years, where God providentially and mercifully provided for his people there. And so this was a celebration of great uh, thanksgiving and praise to God. Um, it came after the time of the harvest. And so it was recognizing, those who participated recognized that every good and perfect gift came from the Father of lights, from God in heaven. And uh, what they would do is, of course, um, reenact... Uh, Israel's wandering in the wilderness. Now, again, it was on the seventh day or the eighth day of that great feast. And on the seventh day, there were three groups gathered. 
And one of the groups would wait in the temple while another group would gather willow branches to adorn the altar. And then a third group would go to the pool of Siloam. And they would play music, some of them accompanying that third group going to that pool. And the priest would go along and fill his goblet with water. And that priest would return with other priests. And there would be a blast of a trumpet. And then he would pour that water into a silver funnel uh, in the temple. And as this happened, the people would shake their branches, their palm branches, and they would sing the Hallel. That's one of the Psalms, one of the Psalms found in Psalm uh, 113 through Psalm 118. And they would say, oh, give thanks to the Lord. And so you, you get the scene. There they are pouring the water, shaking their branches, singing, you know, give thanks to the Lord, the covenant keeping God, the one who keeps his promises. On the eighth day of the feast, really the last and great day of the feast, I think, the priests would surround and walk around the altar seven times. And as they did it, the people would again sing the Hosanna to the Lord. It's been said that um, if no one saw these events, that that person had never seen any rejoicing in his life. In other words, there was so much rejoicing, so much dancing by God's holy people, so much pipe playing, the flute, that if no one saw that rejoicing, he had never seen rejoicing in his life. And so that's the scene. That's the background for this occasion where Jesus boldly, I think courageously, knowing there's a price on him, stands in the midst of a temple, drawing t attention to himself and utters these wonderful words of this great invitation that he gives. And so he stands and he cries out again. You know, the rabbis back, back then, they would, they would sit in order to teach. And we find Jesus in the Gospels seated at times. Seated as the king, seated as the rabbi teaching. But here he stands signaling to these people the significance, the importance, the urgency of his offer. If you look there in verse 37, there is a condition. He begins by the word, if. If anyone thirsts. And so... There is this condition, if anyone thirsts. Now what is Jesus saying here, by the way? He's connecting the events and all of the symbolism and the significance of this great feast. He's connecting those things to him, to Jesus himself. And he says, if anyone thirsts, what kind of thirsting does he mean here? To what does he refer? I think there are two types of thirsting alluded to here. Um, the first is that there is a thirst on the part of men to search for something more in this life. There's that thirst which acknowledges, I think, that there is more to what we experience in this fallen life. 
It's like that woman at the well earlier in John chapter 4, where she goes to the well every day by herself. She's an outcast because she's had all of these husbands, and the one that she's with at that time is not her husband. And Jesus, he, he tells her, if you would have asked, I would have given you living water. You would never thirst again. It would become a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And I think Jesus, in one sense, was telling her, you come back to this well every day. But if you drink from the well that I have, the water that I can give you, you will never thirst again. And so there's that, that thirsting, as some say, we have that Jesus-shaped heart hole in our hearts that only He can fill. And yet we try to fill that hole with different things throughout our lives. There's that kind of thirsting, I think. But also... Um, There is that thirst of a soul that is scorched by the law of God. And before I discuss that, let me just go back to the other type of thirsting. Uh, Children, I think it's, it's like a fish out of water. The thirsting that Jesus talks about here when he says, if anyone thirsts. And if you've caught a fish, you know what it's like to bring it in. And its mouth starts to do this. It's almost like it's panting for water. It's trying to get water so that it can get oxygen and survive. But that fish is out of its element. It's out of that world for which it was created. And you know, that's like mankind. Mankind was created. Adam and Eve, they were created. God put them in the garden where they would dwell with God, where He would walk with them in the cool of the day, where they had communion and fellowship with Him. And as such, they had life. But in Genesis 3, they sinned against God and they were expelled from the garden and death came upon them and all men. And so we are wandering around, as it were, like that fish panting for life, for something more. We were created by God. We were created for God. And so that's why in the Old Testament, the psalmist would so often talk about this and For instance, Psalm 36, the psalmist says in verse 8, they are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house and you give them the drink from the river of your pleasures for with you is the fountain of life and your light we see light. Or Psalm 63 in verse 1 where the psalmist writes there, O God, you are my God, early I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. For the one who has been redeemed, the one who has come to Jesus Christ, he knows, she knows that only God, and specifically God and the person of Jesus Christ, can only quench our thirst in this dry and thirsty land. And so again, that's the first type of thirst there. There's a second type of thirst to which Jesus refers here, I think. And it is the thirst created by the law of God. You know, the law of God for the Christian is his delight. It's her delight. The psalmist in Psalm 119 makes that clear. Jesus makes that clear in John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. Maybe it's 16, 15. It's around there somewhere. But if you love me, keep my commandments. However, for the person... Under the conviction of sin for the first time. The law of God stings, doesn't it? The law of God brings a a bit of a fire. 
And that's because in Romans 3.20 it says that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so it stirs our conscience. It shows us what we look like before God. How God really sees us. That all things are naked and bare before God to whom we must give an account. As Hebrews 4 says. And it's ugly. We see our hearts. It's that spiritual MRI. And so as Galatians 3 says, then the law is the tutor, our tutor, our schoolmaster that leads us to Christ, to Jesus. In one sense, it makes us thirst for something, for a solution, for the forgiveness of sins, to have this ugliness removed from our hearts and to be made right with God. And the law shows us that need and exposes that need, but there's only one thing that can solve the problem we have. And that one thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's really a person. It's Jesus, the one that invites us here to come to Him. And so our Savior says elsewhere in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And so if you've experienced this thirsting, you know that there is a righteousness you need outside of yourself. An alien, a foreign righteousness earned by Jesus Christ. And you thirst for it, you hunger after it. And the promise is those who do so, who hunger and thirst for it, shall be filled. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and to drink. And so to where must we go to obtain our soul's satisfaction for this drink? We must go to Jesus Himself. That's what He's saying. If anyone thirsts, let him come. Let him come to Me. To Me, Jesus says here. And so then how do we obtain it? How do we get this water, this drink? Well, in verse 38 it says, He who believes in Me, as the Scripture says. So drinking... Is what? Believing. It's like we saw in John 6 where Jesus says we must eat His flesh, we must drink His blood. And then after that He says you must believe in Him. It's the same there. We appropriate. We, we take the promises. We receive the promises offered to us in all of the Gospel invitations through faith in Jesus Christ by believing Him. You know, have you ever been around a panhandler? And handler, they're asking for something. They're begging. And uh, they're not offering you money for what they want. In fact, in most cases, it's money that they want. But they reach out their hand and their hand is empty. Well, that's who we are before God. He has what we need. We reach out to Him, not grabbing our wallets, not showing our resume, but we say, I got nothing. But you offered it to me. And by faith I'm going to take it and receive your gracious offer. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. And so then what exactly is the promise of the offer? If you look there in verse 38, it says, He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What does... Jesus mean here? 
There's two offerings. I think both are true. I think he really means one thing out of the two, but, but there's a secondary application here. One picture is this. There is this, this vertical line and then this horizontal line. The vertical line is Jesus pouring out water from heaven. We are drinking the water. We're drinking and drinking. And then once that happens, out of our hearts horizontally proceed this river, in fact, rivers of living water. And so we affect those who are around us. We have this contagious joy, as it were, and that bleeds over into the lives of others so that they then see what we have and they thirst. And that is true. We are the salt of the earth. We preserve the earth. The earth is not destroyed by fire, as it says in 2 Peter 3, yet, because we're here, God's church is here. He's working out his plan of salvation. Also, we are those who make others thirst for Jesus at times. But other times we're persecuted because they see the life of Christ come through us. I think here, what our Lord is talking about is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in each and every Christian. I mean, in verse 39, it says, this is John's commentary, inspired commentary, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, but because Jesus, or rather because Jesus was not yet glorified. When was Jesus glorified? At the time of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Even his ascension, he would go and sit by the right hand of the Father, at the right hand of the Father. From there, in Acts chapter 2, we see he would pour out his spirit at the day of Pentecost, where the church comes of age. We see the church in her maturity. And then they all speak with other tongues and that sort of thing. And Jesus here is not saying that every person will speak in tongues. But his point is he would give his spirit as he promised in John chapters 14 through 16. And so as one receives the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as Ephesians 1 says, he is sealed for the day of adoption or the day of redemption in Ephesians 1. In Romans 8, Paul there talks about if you are a Christian, you cry out, Abba, Father, by the means and power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of adoption. And so he's talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this life. Now maybe you're thinking, you've thought about this before, what about all those saints in the Old Testament? Did they not have some ministry of the Holy Spirit? Well, of course they did. If a person in the Old Testament was converted, they definitely had the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because as Ephesians 2 says, we're all born dead in our sins and trespasses. We cannot come to God. We cannot believe, have faith in the promises of God, the promises of salvation, unless the Holy Spirit makes us alive in Christ. And of course, there were these different ministries in the Old Testament, these different offices, you know, prophet, priest, king, the, those who work. Um, artisans on the temple, musicians, at times the Spirit would come upon each of them, and that was a certain ministry of the Holy Spirit in those days. But the point is, here, Christians today, after Pentecost, receive and enjoy a fuller measure of the Holy Spirit. Each and every Christian 
has this anointing, as John, the gospel writer, will say in 1 John. As Jesus has promised, so it was fulfilled. He promised in John 14 through 16, it was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. And the ministry of the Spirit looks like what Paul talks about in Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, self-control, and the like. For against such things there is no law. Rivers of living water. Jesus says here, in verse 38, as the scripture has said, and uh, you might ask the question, well, which scripture is he talking about? I think he's talking about a compilation of scriptures. And uh, if, if you have an old album or cassette or CD, I don't know if this works with MP3s or whatever you got today. I've got them too. But uh, there's just something about holding a book. There's something about holding an album or CD cover. But you might have a compilation by an artist, and you might have on that record all of the songs that were very popular by that artist, and the compilation, the whole album, might be called by another name. It might not be one of those songs, and maybe that's something like Jesus is doing here. As the Scripture has said, when you consider all of those songs of the Old Testament, here's the compilation title. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I mean, remember what is going on in the Old Testament. Remember in the wilderness, you know, that event that is represented here by this great feast where Jesus is teaching, the Feast of Tabernacles. In the wilderness, God's people, they've come out of Egypt. In Exodus 17, they look at Moses. They begin to grumble and complain, have you brought us here to die, Moses? Moses prays to God, has this conversation with God. God tells him what to do, so he strikes the rock. Out of this rock comes living water. And it says in Exodus 17, the people drank the water. Well, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, said that the drink that they, the drink they drank was spiritual drink, and the rock itself was spiritual. That means it has spiritual significance. And then he says, that rock was Christ. It is Christ who pours forth the living water, who sustains us, who gives life to us, and it's spiritual life that He comes to give. Of course, a resurrected body at the last day. In Ezekiel 47, there's that wonderful picture of this new temple that will be constructed under the new covenant during the if we want to say the church age, under the New Testament administration of the covenant of grace. But there's this new, new temple. The church, by the way, it's not a literal physical temple. I mean, Ephesians 2 says we are being built a spiritual temple. First Peter 2, we're a temple. We are spiritual stones built upon one another. But in that picture in Ezekiel 47, there is water gushing under the threshold. There's water gushing around the sides. The water rises to Ezekiel's knees in that picture. That represents the very presence of God by His Spirit with His church, His people. You are the temple of the living God. Do you not know this? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6, that the Spirit of God dwells within you. And of course, the picture there is God's presence with His people, His church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Christ. So Jesus here is telling people, he's calling people, inviting people to come to him because he is greater than the temple. The water that they see and enjoy, for which they give thanks, he offers living water, spiritual drink. So what he offers is greater than what they are experiencing there in their feast. It is the forgiveness of sins. It is His righteousness. It is the joy of salvation. As the psalmist says, in your presence is fullness of joy. And so the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, 3, talking about the Messiah to come and calling upon those to whom He ministered in His day, making that invitation, God through the prophet Isaiah, He would say, Ho, everyone who... Thirsts. Come, come, come to the waters. And you who have no money, the beggar with the empty hand, come and buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why? Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy? nothing new under the sun, is there? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercy of David. We have a similar invitation at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21. Where there's the promise, the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to give the fountain of living water freely to him who thirsts. My friend, have you drank from this spiritual fountain? Do you know what it is like to taste and see that the Lord is good? To have joy. That only Christ Jesus can give. And that's the question we should be asking those outside of the church. Our friends, our enemies, our neighbors, our relatives, our co-workers. As we go about this life talking about the salvation that we enjoy. Offer them a drink. A drink of spiritual water. To drink from the fountain that Christ Himself and alone Holds. Now, you've no doubt heard of John Calvin. I know all of you here. I know you have. Um, I appreciate his honesty here when he comments on this verse. Because he addresses the Christian. He's talking about himself. He's talking about the Christian. And he, he says, really, we cannot possess a perfect fullness of the Spirit's gifts and graces in this life. Why would he say that? Because we have this thing called remaining sin. Right? Paul talks about this in Galatians 5. <clears throat> the the, the um, lust of the flesh is against the lust of the spirit. The desires of the flesh, the remaining sin that we have, it, it fights against the, the Holy Spirit and the desires that the Spirit gives us. But then the Spirit comes back and, and fights against the desires of the flesh. And so Calvin acknowledges that. 
And yet, note what Jesus says. If you look in verse 37, he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Multiple rivers. A river is continual. There is no drought with the Holy Spirit. And so, yes, we we depart from uh, the straight and narrow at times. I do in my thoughts and in my heart. I know it. I Like that, that hymn says, Lord, I'm prone to feel it. I'm prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Had a lot of caffeine. Should have more water this morning. But the Lord comes in, and the great shepherd, the good shepherd, he pulls us back in, and he does that by means of his church. No doubt church leaders, yes, but ultimately in our hearts by his spirit. And so we do persevere until the end. Well, as we consider this invitation, there are the various responses, the reactions, its varied reception in verses 40 through 53. And uh, as we cover these quickly, um, let me just say that what happens here is, is a, a bit of comfort to a preacher. And it should be um, somewhat comforting to uh, preachers today as well as those who take the gospel to others. Non-preachers, church members, Christians who tell the gospel and tell others about Jesus. Why do I say it's a little bit of comfort here? Because this is Jesus, the greatest preacher who ever walked the face of the earth. And we see here the reaction on the part of others. It's buried. So what happened? We see the reaction from the people. Uh, In verse 40, they are saying amongst themselves, well, this is the prophet, a reference to Deuteronomy 18, the prophet promised uh, at the time of Moses. Verse 41, others said, this is the Christ, you know, the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, the, the one who had come from the line of David. But then in verse 41, it says, but some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? And the question expects no for an answer. Verse 42, has not the scriptures said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? The answer is yes. And did Jesus do this? Yes. He may not have lived in Bethlehem all of his life. He may have spent only a little time there as an infant, but he was born there just as the scriptures prophesied. We've already seen this in this chapter. I think it's Micah 5, 2. But if they were just to investigate like others did at the time of Jesus' birth, like the Magi who would know where Jesus would be born, who um, also Herod, when he investigated and inquired, there were those who knew that he would be born in the town of David the king. In Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1, um, he was to be born in Jerusalem. Chapter 2 of Matthew, verses 5 and 6, he would born, be born in Bethlehem. They knew it. Luke 2 and verse 4, we could go on. And so back in our text, John 7 and verse uh, 43, it says, So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Why? Because again, his hour had not yet come. Then there are the officers in verse 46 and verse 45. Um, Imagine they're a little hesitant to come back to the Pharisees. Why? Because they come empty-handed. So the Pharisees inquire. They scold the officers whom they sent to go and arrest and bring Jesus to them. They say, why have you not brought him in verse 45? 
Well, verse 46, they answer, no man ever spoke like this man. Now, this is interesting because not only does it remind us of texts like Matthew 7 at the end, also Matthew 13, 54 and 56, where it says that Jesus taught not as the scribes, but as one with authority. Makes us think of that. But to what now are they paying attention? On what are they focusing now when it comes to Jesus? Not so much His works, His miracles, and all of His signs, but His teaching, His Word. And they're saying, no man. So in other words, maybe He is a prophet. And so then the words of Psalm 45 and verse 2, that messianic psalm speaking about Jesus is true. It says, you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured forth from your lips. Where do we find grace? Where do we hear grace? From the lips of Jesus. That's why. So these Pharisees, what do they do? In verse 47, they answer, they say, well, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? That's their official position. Of course not. We don't believe in him. But there is one who is on his way. Verse 49, but the crowd, this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. The, the common folk, as my father-in-law would say, probably the riffraff, the uneducated, um, they don't know the law. And therefore they are accursed. These people, I mean, we have to allow them to live in society. We need their... their Temple tax. We have to have someone to teach and look down upon. After all. See what they're doing. Are you deceived too? They're saying Jesus is a deceiver. They're saying that the common people are deceived by Jesus. Now they're asking the question to the officers who come empty handed without Jesus. Are you too deceived by this man? And you who have not gone to college but plan to go to college. Remember this text. Because here you have not only an educated teacher of the finer things, but you have an educated teacher in what we would call an apostate church, a church that had turned away from God. At least the teachers are apostate. But they're looking down on those who believe in Jesus. And they who believe in Jesus have every right they have all the evidence. They have the truth. They believe in Jesus. But the ones who are the educated teachers, they have no refutation. They have no rebuttal. They have no defense for their position. So what do they do? They attack those who believe. If you go to an unbelieving college, you young people, you may very well be attacked for what you believe. But you're not the first. And so you stand with those who have gone before you in standing for the truth of the gospel of Christ. And so then there's one in verse 50 who comes from among the Pharisees, Nicodemus. Yes, the one who, we are told, came to Jesus by night. And he asked the Pharisees in verse 51, does not our law judge a man before he hears him and knows what he is doing? You see, the Old Testament law, it, it is just. 
And in God's law in Exodus 23, Deuteronomy 17, it says you're not to circulate a false report. That you are to establish a claim, especially if the death penalty is involved, murder and so forth, blasphemy. You are to establish every word by two or three witnesses. Proverbs 18.13 says, He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. What is the problem of the Pharisees? They have answered a matter before they have heard it. They don't want to hear it. They want Jesus gone. He's a threat to their system, to their pockets, to their power, their position. And so they ask in verse 52, are you from Galilee? I mean, what an insult. Being from Galilee and then being among those who are deceived, those who ask these questions about Jesus. Are you so stupid? Then they, they say, well, search the scriptures. You know, that's what we do. Um, if you're like us, this is what you do. And, and verse 52, look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Is that true? What about Hosea? Are we told from where each and every prophet in the Old Testament comes? No, we are not. You see, they have no answer. And so it's left here in verse 53, which probably goes with the next passage. It says, everyone went to his own house. You see, Jesus' hour had not yet come. As we think about this this morning, let me take a minute to make three applications to us. Number one is the free offer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now some Christians, they would say, well, why, is, why do you have to make that point, Kevin? Well, because we believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe in that thing called predestination, Ephesians 1.5. We believe in the election, Ephesians 1.4, right? That doesn't mean that we may shirk our call to preach the gospel. Matthew, or rather Mark 16, 15, to preach the gospel to every creature. Jesus tells us to do that in Mark 16, 15. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And here, Jesus, if you noticed it, in verse 37 says, If anyone thirsts, if you who have traveled afar to come to this feast, to make that pilgrimage, if you thirst, if you live here in Jerusalem, if you thirst, for those of you who are teachers of the law, even Pharisees, Nicodemus, and others, if you thirst, and yes, if you are a Gentile, removed 2,000 years from now, if you thirst, Jesus says, if any man thirsts. In fact, the Old Testament, Isaiah 55, I think it says, everyone who thirsts, come. Come to the waters. Jesus says, come and come to me. The key is you must thirst. You can't really thirst unless the Spirit of God is at work in you. But if you do thirst, come. That's the invitation. Second, concerns God's ordinances, those things by which He makes Himself known. And I'm thinking today, really the sacraments, I'm thinking of baptism and the Lord's Supper. You see here in this context, there is this great feast. God made himself known through that feast, giving them the sign of water. We also have a sign today that includes water. It is baptism. 
our engrafting into Christ, being a church member, washing away of our sins, all of these things, it symbolizes. But I think we understand from this text and passages like this that it is part of our fallen human nature to cling to the signs and not the things signified. So today, people say, you know, they ask the question, are you a Christian? What is a, uh, an answer so often given? I've been baptized. I walked the aisle. We've made that a sacrament in the last hundred years. That's not a sacrament. But uh, anyway, I've been baptized. Well, if I, you know, pour water on a duck or if I roll a ball down the aisle, does that mean that person is Christian? No. Kids, it's kind of like going to Chick-fil-A and you're, you're starving and you go up and you hug the Chick-fil-A sign. You can't eat the Chick-fil-A sign. The sign points you to what's inside, back in the kitchen where they're working so hard to, to fry, to deep fry that chicken. You have to go and get the chicken. That's what it signified. Well, baptism signifies Jesus and His work, His person. You have to go and get Jesus and believe in Him. And then last, brothers and sisters, we know what is true of the world. But I wonder if we recognize and admit and confess at times what is true of the world is true of us, that, that we have this tendency to search for meaning, identity, and joy in the things of this world and not God Himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. We go after things, and sometimes these things are good and perfect gifts. James 2 talks about, James 1.17, given to us by God. But we need to look beyond the gift to the giver. In Jeremiah chapter 2, God tells His people, His covenant community, He says, My people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Two, they have hewn, they have cut, they have made for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, which can hold no water. Brother and sister, when you're found holding a broken cistern, remember this invitation. Of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we are your people. And you've made us to lie down in green pastures next to still waters. We live in the land of plenty, but you are taking away the plenty in different means. And Lord, it might be that You are doing this because we have become fat and satisfied. Not with that which You have given to us for our spiritual nourishment and enjoyment, but things of the world have made us that way. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would return to You that we would return to Jesus Christ who makes this awesome and wonderful invitation 
and in whose name we do pray. Amen.